0: Welcome to the first episode of the Socialist Lawyer podcast. I'm Hannah
1: and I'm Joe. In this episode we'll be focusing on a government policy to detain and deport homeless EEA migrants.
0: The Government claimed that by being homeless, European Sleeping Rough were abusing their EU rights. This was challenged through judicial review in a case known as Gorekus and the Secretary of State for the Home Department. Judgment was delivered in December 2017 and the policy was declared unlawful.
2: We're
1: going to discuss the legal aspects of the challenge itself, but also how and why the policy came into being, the controversial involvement of homelessness charities and the advantages and disadvantages of strategic litigation. You'll hear from a number of people involved, a campaigner from a grassroots migrant support organisation, a researcher and two lawyers involved in the case.
0: The first person we'll hear from is Benjamin, from North East London Migrant Action, Nelma. We really recommend checking out Nelma's website. There are some very moving first-hand accounts of what it was like to be subjected to these awful policies shedding much-needed light on the reality of the government's agenda of creating a hostile environment for migrants.
1: Set up in 2015, Nelma provides solidarity and support for migrants and focus on helping families and individuals with no recourse to public funds, which they describe as a form of state violence. This support includes running an accompanying scheme for migrants approaching social services, providing information on migrants' rights in various languages, and they also support Aquaba, a social centre based in Hackney.
3: We're a grassroots group in the sense that... I mean, we're a grassroots group in the sense that we don't have any money, but we're also a grassroots group in the sense that we have always tried to base what we do in the experiences of members of the group or people that we know. And the the initial campaigning around no around recourse to public funds and the experiences of destitute families came out of... Um, a lot of us who are in Nelma also being involved in Aquaba, which is a social centre in around sort of tail end of 2016 we started getting a lot more homeless EU migrants coming to our social centre on a Sunday um, either for food or for kind of The destitution items that we were giving out were just to sort of have a place to to hang out and most of them are in work or some a lot of them are in and out of work Um, and you know they have a really difficult time and they tend to go unseen we asked benjamin how he
1: came to know about the detention and deportation of rough sleeping eea migrants
3: in about december 2016 we noticed that all of a sudden, there weren't as many of the guys anymore. That some of them had gone missing. We we found out that basically, you know, there'd been there'd been a couple of raids that had happened locally to us um, up in Haringey, and um, you know, the the immigration had come to people's sleeping sites. A lot of guys had run away. Um, you know, some people had hurt themselves when they were running away, but other people had been either served with removal notices or um were actually detained on the spot and the guy that we were talking to said you know that he knew he knew 13 people who were either currently in detention or or who had already been sent back
0: next benjamin told us how nelman mobilized in response to the raids
3: um well initially we were trying to find out what was going on and trying to, you know, sort of make ourselves informed about the issue and, and understand why it was happening and and understand the policy because it wasn't something that people had been talking about. We we I think we organized some public meetings, you know, in the way that like activists group you know, don't know what to do, have a public meeting, um, and tried to get different kind of groups and organisations that, that work with homeless people or that know homeless people in a room and talk about it. And I think for Nelma, initially it was about, um, you know, this feeling like another very kind of vivid manifestation of 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 the border regime as 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 sort of as state violence, you know, and the cynicism of sort of compounding the misery of of, of a person who is forced by various factors to to, to sleep on the streets by saying, well, actually, um, rather than rather than helping you with this, we're going to we're going to a punitive response. Benjamin told us how Nelma decided to fight the policy. There were two ways that felt like useful ways of opposing it and that one of them was um, trying to target not so much the Home Office with bad publicity because the Home Office doesn't care about that publicity um, but rather the kind of voluntary sector organisations that were complicit in the policy um, because they care about what people think, and they've got a fundraising you know a fundraising bottom line and all of that sort of thing. Um, so on the one hand you know in terms of drawing public attention to the issue that felt like the way to go. Um, and also we were kind of appalled by it, but um, it was a, it was a sort of a, a strategic decision and also um, on the other hand that you know that probably the best way to, to do something about the policy was going to be strategic, you know, legal work.
1: Next, we'll hear from Jean, who provided integral research that helped win the case. He has spent many years as an outreach
4: worker working with homeless people. I knew that immigration enforcement against Europeans had been taking place since 2010 because I was an outreach worker at that time already. Um, but now, the, I guess the policy had changed and they were picking up simply for rough sleeping.
0: We asked him how he first came to hear about collaboration between the Home Office and homelessness charities. Here he is describing a meeting that took place between the Home Office, the Greater London Authority, the GLA, local councils and a number of homelessness charities.
4: There was a meeting um, at the mayor's office. The mayor um, convenes a meeting with the main voluntary organisations working in homelessness in London. Um, a number of uh, London boroughs, the Home Office, the police, and the GLA representing the the mayor's team. And that meeting was focused on enforcement and how enforcement could help reduce homelessness. And very much the talk was about non-UK nationals sleeping rough and how enforcement could help reduce their numbers. And various avenues were discussed, including the provision of accommodation for these people, but the group decided to go against that. I'm not saying that it was necessarily a unanimous decision within that group, but the minutes are very clear that the group was strongly supportive of changing legislation to introduce uh, oppression at those. However, Um, There was a representative of the Department for uh, Communities and Local Government there. And they said that even if, you know, they could try and do it, it would probably take months, if not years, to do such changes in legislation. And within two months we have Operation Adose starting.
0: Jean heard about the policy through an acquaintance working in homelessness outreach and decided to investigate more.
4: I decided to write to a number of directors who I knew uh, at St. Mungo's, Thames Rich, uh, Homeless Link, and also staff at the GLA, and asked them what operation at it was. And I basically got shut down and been told that they didn't know anything about it when I knew they were, you know, in the heart, at the heart of it. Um, and I think that refusal is the first thing that got me really motivated to really dig into what's, to what was going
1: on. A controversial and widely publicized aspect of this policy was the collaboration between the Home Office and homelessness charities. These charities provided essential intelligence that helped immigration enforcement locate homeless EEA nationals.
4: Homelessness agencies have been at best disingenuous about the whole issue. Um, For months and months, Um, they've never denied that they're going out with immigration and enforcement teams, but they were explaining that their role is one of mitigating the effects of enforcement. And In other documents, we also find that it's very much this sort of carrot and stick uh, approach, although it's one between voluntary return and removal, which is, really the same thing one is enforced and one is voluntary Mm. but if your only other options to voluntary return is removal is hardly voluntary
0: Jean explained the extent to which homelessness charities assisted the home office in immigration enforcement
4: Um, what they've never accepted is the fact that the operations and the success of these operations because hundreds of people if not thousands were uh, removed throughout the UK the success of these operations rely on the knowledge, on the intelligence that street outreach teams pass on to the home office. And there's various ways in which these are passed on. One are the joint shifts, of course, because, you know, you can just lead people to the to the sleeping sites. Um, but also street outreach workers in general have probably one of the best knowledges of what, perhaps not what is going on on the streets, but certainly where people sleep. and you know, they're out day in, day out. And they have fairly small patches, which they cover, they have contact with the police, they have contact with the council, so they they kind of know their stuff. Mm -hmm. What is worrying is when that knowledge of the streets is passed on to the Home Office, which then uses it, um, again, to detain and deport people. And that is really the core of, I, I, I feel really strong that, those operations could have never worked so well. And in fact, they could have not worked at all because the Home Office, if they didn't have the knowledge of the of the street outreach teams, would have to cover so much ground. It would, it would be pointless. They, there's no point to do such operations. So having the homelessness team involved is, is great for them. But it's also great for the homelessness teams because then they can meet their targets. And the local authority who commissioned them will also be supportive of that. And the Mayor of London as well because if they see a reduction in homelessness that's what they will care about not about the means to do to do so.
0: So the government's method for reducing homelessness of EEA nationals was simply to get rid of them. The legal challenge was brought by Public Interest Law Unit and Nelma who we heard from earlier. To describe what exactly was being challenged we spoke to Stephen Knight and Shanti Sivakumaran members of the Haldane Society, and two of the barristers acting in this case.
1: Here's Stephen introducing
2: the team, and Shanti explaining the three grounds of challenge. I was one of the three junior barristers involved in the case, along with Shanti and Natalie Shangri. We were led by Marie-Dimitrie Cousy, and we were instructed by Paul Heron and the team at the Public Interest Law Unit.
5: Okay, so there were three main grounds of challenge. The first was regarding abuse of rights. We said that rough sleeping could not amount to an abuse of rights and therefore a reason for removing an EA national. Uh, The second ground of challenge was on the basis of discrimination. We said um, selecting and removing EA nationals for rough sleeping constituted discrimination on the grounds of property and nationality. And then the final um, ground of challenge was that conducting operations looking for EA nationals who are rough sleeping amounted to systematic verification of EA rights, which is specifically prohibited in um, the EU directives.
1: So, first grounds first,
2: what is an abusive right? An abusive rights has two elements to it, a subjective element and an objective element. So firstly, the objective element is that you have to actually be undermining the purposes of the right. So if, in the case of the right to free movement, you have to be undermining whatever objective the free movement seeks to achieve. The subjective element essentially means that you have to be intending to do that by some artificial means.
5: So the most well-known example is a marriage of convenience, where an E. A. national decides that they're going to marry uh, someone who's a third country national, someone from outside the EU, just so that that person can stay within the UK. It's considered an abuse of rights because they don't really want to have a genuine marriage, and the only reason they're doing that is to take advantage of EU country rights. So what the government was essentially saying was that rough sleeping was equivalent to a marriage of convenience in terms of taking advantage of their EU rights to be here.
0: Stephen and Shanti described the arguments put forward by both sides.
2: Our argument was that rough sleeping can never constitute an abuse of rights or a misuse of rights as the government changed its name to later in the process. The whole idea that by sleeping rough someone was undermining the purpose of the EU treaties we suggested was absurd and we also suggested that it couldn't satisfy the subjective element of the test because clearly a person doesn't intend to sleep rough and there's nothing artificial in sleeping rough in terms of allowing someone to satisfy the conditions for exercising their treaty rights so the objective element isn't there and neither is the subjective element
5: I think one of the interesting features of the case was that the government actually tried to change their position midway through the case and say that rough sleeping may be an indicator. So whilst we're saying that it could never be an measure for abuse of rights they said actually they hadn't been saying that from the beginning what they were looking at is that rough sleeping may show you're abusing your rights if you're rough sleeping and if you're not working and if they were adding lots of conditions and they were saying you might also be a social nuisance or in some way not conducive to society because you're rough sleeping but we challenged that because their policies showed that they were clearly looking for people on the basis that they were rough sleeping and that was the beginning and end point of how they treated people and that was accepted in the decision um, by the High Court that they were just treating people as uh, abusing the rights by rough
2: sleeping only.
1: The team also argued that the policy was discriminatory.
2: We said that it was discriminatory on two grounds. Firstly that it was discriminatory on grounds of property and secondly that it was discriminatory on grounds of nationality. With regard to the property point, We said that homelessness was essentially a shorthand for not having property, and because only homeless people were being targeted, that was discrimination on the grounds of property. With regard to nationality, it was perhaps even simpler than that, that this policy was only targeting non-British citizens, EEA nationals, and therefore it was clearly discriminatory on the grounds of uh, of nationality.
0: Here's Shanti explaining how the judge received the arguments on discrimination. Well, she didn't accept the argument in respect
5: of property because she said that some rough sleepers would have property, and so that didn't go very far. But she did say it was discriminatory based on nationality. Um, that was actually quite interesting because the Home Office, uh, Home Office's argument was that it wasn't discriminatory. Well. It was justified in discrimination on the basis of nationality because they're entitled to maintain um, immigration controls, and that's the prerogative of the state. But within the EU um, legislation, the purpose of the EU is to facilitate free movement, not border controls. And so there shouldn't be that discrimination between EEA nationals and UK nationals as long as you are living within uh, one of the conditions of the EU treaties, working, studying, um, and so forth. So that was actually quite an interesting point, I think, on what she found in respect of discrimination.
1: The third ground of argument centred on the way in which the government investigated rough sleepers, a process which the team argued was systematic verification. Here's Stephen explaining their position.
2: Essentially, the Home Office can't systematically check whether European nationals are exercising their treaty rights or abusing their treaty rights. What we argued in this case was that the Home Office going out with homelessness charities looking for EA nationals on the streets was systematically verifying their of treaty rights or checking whether they were abusing their treaty rights.
0: The point is that any decision to refuse, terminate or withdraw a right conferred by the EU Citizens' Rights Directive must be based on an individual examination of the particular case. Shanti explained why this was a particularly important point to win. One thing that I would add is um, this ground of challenge on systematic verification
5: is what had real practical implications for people because with the abuse of uh, law point that was an interesting legal point, it was an interesting point of challenge that you can't be abusing your treaty rights by rough sleeping but the real issue is that the Home officers were conducting these operations in conjunction with homelessness charities that are supposed to be helping Um, individuals who are rough sleeping. By succeeding just on the first ground regarding abuse of rights that wouldn't necessarily stop the operations taking place because they could still be going out looking for um, people who are rough sleeping on the premise that they might not be exercising treaty rights. Now what we found through this case and through many other people we've advised is that's not true because a lot of people who are rough sleeping are still working they're still exercising their treaty rights, but they can't afford regular accommodation because of the costs of employment, um, the costs of accommodation in London and in other major cities in the UK, and also because of, well, basically zero-hour contracts, un- um, insecure employment conditions. So. They should be able to challenge that, but the practical realities of someone sleeping on the street is that it's very hard to be able to assert your rights to the Home Office when they're coming and serving decisions and saying that you weren't working, trying to prove that you're being paid cash in hand, can be very difficult in those circumstances. So this ground of challenge on systematic verification was very important in stopping the operations.
0: In conclusion, the judicial review was successful on all grounds except discrimination on the basis of property. If anyone knows a rough sleeper who does in fact own a house or two, please let us know via social media or email.
1: Here's Stephen giving some insight into how the government operated after being slapped on the wrist by the court.
2: Well, as lawyers, we don't necessarily see what's going on on the ground, but what we do see sometimes is cases that have continued in the system despite uh, this lead case being decided in our favour. I have one client recently who remained in detention from oh, in the middle of 2017 through to January 2018 and the government had set removal directions for her in February despite the fact that they knew that they couldn't remove her and indeed couldn't detain her after the Grekis decision. So we do know that this this lead judgement can be ignored by the government even though they're legally barred from ignoring it.
0: To conclude, we'll hear Shanti, Stephen, Benjamin and Jean reflecting on their experience of challenging the Home Office in the courts.
5: For me it was about the case having a real practical effect and that was only achievable by working with activists. like the people from NALMA and also researchers such as Jean Damas, because they were people working on the front line with a lot of individuals that have been directly affected. When you are doing a legal challenge, you can be sometimes very narrowly focused just on that legal challenge. And I think it added a great value or contribution to the case that we had researchers who'd been working on it for a long time, knew the history of the policy and had been seeing it as it evolved, as well as... Um, with activists who were directly communicating with individuals experiencing the policy on an everyday basis.
2: Yeah, The fact is that if we hadn't been tied in with academics we wouldn't have had the evidence base that we needed in order to be able to bring the challenge and if we hadn't been tied in with activists we wouldn't have had the reach to um, get out into the community to meet the clients themselves who are actually being affected by this policy. It's why that interaction between lawyers Activists, academics is is so essential to uh, the way that we want to bring strategic litigation. Here's Benjamin from Nelma, elaborating
1: on the benefits and costs of strategic litigation. It's really
3: helpful to um, to have anything that um, is going to kind of confer a bit of legitimacy on what on what you're on what you're trying to say and what you're doing. And I suppose in an ideal world, like the the political and the moral argument would speak for itself. But unfortunately, that isn't that isn't really the case. To have lawyers involved and to, to be able to identify um, legal remedies or possible legal remedies is a real kind of a real bonus, and it and it and it helps a lot, and it can make you feel like you're not just. Right, thrashing around in the dark. However, as Benjamin points out, there are downsides too. I mean, it's it's it feels very much like a surgical a sort of surgical intervention where what's actually needed is something which is just going to blow everything apart, um, and that's you know that that can be a bit discouraging in a way because it is you know. All that all that we were able to do in this case, or all that the, the lawyers involved were able to do, was was um, was stop the policy. And it's great that they could stop the policy, because in lots of cases, the policies that 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 we don't like or that infringe upon people's rights carry on. But the fact is, most of the guys that are implicated or affected by the policy, they were on the streets a year ago. Most of them are still on the streets, and that you know the the legal challenge. In this case, it did nothing to address the whole kind of complex of of factors and injustices that that contribute towards people who are in work not being able to afford to have anywhere to live. People are getting very bogged down in 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 legal and legalistic solutions, and the like the old ways of campaigning, like you know everything from, or the new ways of campaigning, like everything from like civil disobedience to, to like doing an effective social media campaign. Can 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 end up being, um, you know, relegated to yeah to into into insignificance because everybody thinks well the answer is to the answer is to is to find the right case.
0: Finally, here's Jean.
3: I
4: think one of the things that we do have to think about as well is that it was a legal victory, and that means we haven't convinced Saint Mongols the mayor of London or anyone else involved in those operations that it was not a good idea to do this and I guess what I enjoy about the strategic litigation was it was a new experience for me and it was again a sort of perhaps not antagonistic but at least combative way of going about the issue and for all that the uh, homelessness organisations uh, you know, are going to feel victimized by this whole uh, episode. Um, I think there were so many attempts to talk to them in the early stages and they've always shut us down, that it had to come to a legal uh, battle. Or then we have to start thinking about what other means we could use. Um, and I think some of the communication work definitely um, hit Uh, Their fundraising efforts for example and I think that's that's the point where they could be uh, hit Um, but I think there could have been also disruptions of operations um, whilst they were um, being carried out on the streets in a sort of anti raids type manner that I think that could have been quite effective as well.
0: It's worth putting this into a wider context Even if specific policies are declared unlawful, there remains a hostile environment, with many policies and laws actively seeking to make life harder for migrants in the UK. To conclude, Joe will read two paragraphs from an article by Nelma on Pluto Press's blog.
1: Cuts to legal aid provision mean those detained are frequently unable to find a solicitor to challenge the decision. Immigration enforcement officers routinely neglect to use interpreters to explain grounds for removal or outline appeal rights. The result? People are being deported from the UK without being given the opportunity to ask why. Aside from being the only country to deport people for being homeless, Britain is the only nation in the EU that retains a system of indefinite immigration detention. As a result, people are being detained for months while they fight to establish their right to remain in the UK.
0: Thanks for listening to the first episode of the Socialist Lawyer podcast. We'll be back soon with episode two.
5: Socialist Lawyer podcast is produced by members of the Haldane Society of Socialist Lawyers. We are a collective of law students, solicitors, barristers and anyone else with an interest in law and socialism.